Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. It simply must be another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio live and in person by the storyboard artist, 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 extraminist. He's uh, one of the best, and he's been doing the storyboards for the Coen brothers for 20 years and counting, and also many films that we know and love. He's called J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Hello, Nikki Secret Dakota Rain. <laughs> Also not a secret, the other film guy. Joining us via the phone line from Culpeper, Virginia, he is the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress, our man at the Library of Congress, and possessor of the largest frame brain on the planet. He's our friend, George Willeman. George, welcome. And we are carefully preserving our bodily fluids out here in Virginia, <laughs> I'll have you know. Uh, Which comes into play. Uh-oh, what do we but, have? No, no. Leave. We don't want your bodily fluids in here. We don't need your bodily fluids. We don't need to help you. George, George. Precious, precious. George, listen to George, but listen to him. George, tell him. Tell him. No, we don't. Bud, I mean, we don't have any more room for them anyways. Yes. We stored so many. Bodily fluids come in strangely relevant to don't today's think that, Like movie. somebody left a bathtub on. All the water will be running, running in the door and everything. Just... Not that again. Bodily fluids and Leave. the Get out of here. hydrogen Go. bomb. Go, bud. Leave. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way up. Go. We are gathered together today to talk about, strangely enough, uh, among one of the uh, most perfect movies of all time, and uh, uh, that has to do with war and and intrigue <laughs> and bodily fluids, and maybe not the kind you think. It has to it's do all with great, war. great material for a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Is this movie a comedy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's got Very some disturbing comedy. parts, but some laughable parts. But it's all with an, uh, a dark, dark undertone. And gentlemen, we haven't said the name of the movie yet. Oh, one of the reasons we're doing this movie is because everybody has asked us to do this movie. That's right. So uh, all of you who are out there who asked us, here it is. Now be quiet. <laughs> and the movie is... Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. 1964, and marvelous... Our favorite monochromatic uh, style, black and white. Love it. Love it. 1964, so over 40 years ago now, and still just uh, some of the finest uh, commentary on human nature and how we act in groups and how uh, power comes into play as individuals and as nations, and and it's absolutely uh, just riveting throughout. Well, it's still going to it's gonna be one of the perfect markers for the Cold War, uh, one of the absolute... Perfect reflections of the absurdity of the times. Um, Not only the absurdity of the time, but the absurdity of, of, of people at war in particular. And, you know, people, countries setting, them, setting themselves up for a fall. You know, getting hoisted on their own petard in a really, really big way. Yeah. It uh, is Dr. Strangelove, the 1964 Stanley Kubrick-directed movie, right? And uh, just because I don't have the frame brains, what, is the, what in the sequence does this relate to 2001 A Space Odyssey? This was 
the same director. Last movie before 2001. I knew it was the same director. I was asking if it came before or after. I had learned a little from the film guys. Well, it is really interesting that, I mean, you know, there's a huge gap. Ouch! Oh, oh easy, Doctor Dickie. Strangelove and 2001 because 2001 took so long to put together. I mean, there's this big gap in his career between 64 and, what was it, 68 or 69 when 2001 finally came out. So I they mean, were s- uh, consecutive movies yeah. from Stanley Kubrick. He never made a lot of movies as far as, like, you know, like Marco Cortese or those great film directors. Um, right. But he made great a long ones, time you know. Off. Like, between Full Metal Jacket and the movie before that, it was like 10 years, I think. Um, I can't remember. What was the movie right before that, George? Full Metal before Jacket. Full Metal Jacket was uh, The Shining. Is like oh, a full wow. ten years, something like that, had passed. A lot of time had passed. Something of a genius, something of a uh, a savant. Yeah, a lot I don't of power. Know. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, power. of power as a director. He could do just about anything he wanted to. Right. He was one of those true individuals where you know, he basically he did what he wanted, how he wanted to, and and nobody told him otherwise. This movie is remarkable in so many ways, and it's clear that there was a. Uh, someone who wasn't being constrained <laughs> too well, my, much behind this. His lawyer told me one time, I met his lawyer, and he said that uh, sometimes Kubrick planned seven or eight years to make a movie. He just took his good old time doing it. Uh, he had every this crazy filing system that he used on all these motion pictures. and the Before computers, and, by the way, so it's probably just, like all hand notation. Just plan and plan and plan and plan and plan, you know, and then he finally get around to making the movie. Gentlemen, before we go too much further down the path, it is important to remind listeners that perfect movies uh, have to pass a very, very strict set of, well, there's uh, there's preliminary uh, uh, elimination heats, and then uh, eventually they get to the final uh, perfect rules, if you will. And, gentlemen, those rules are... Uh, Dr. Strangelove creates the world it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of time, passages in time and culture, it will always retain its meaning. And entertainment value, by And entertainment value. That's right. And the perfect movie was never replaced in any preferential or numerical order. It is perfect by its own bodily fluid. Okay, George, so you have to then give us a little inkling into the relevance of bodily fluid uh, to the plot of this movie. And it is just bizarre, to say the least. Uh, and uh, by the way, I'll just now, say right now... wait a minute, wait a minute. Comparison, on a comparison level, you have to, you can say this movie is bizarre, but it really isn't. Think about the content and, and the subject of the content they're dealing with, which is... Mo- a thermal nuclear war yeah. in, in multiple places and not being able to call back a bomber. That, that, that seems you absurd know, in premise, but we're living under that umbrella to this day yeah. to a certain extent, not you know, quite you're as extreme. Right. I'll give you that. Bizarre actually isn't the word. But, but think about it. that. You know, Stark, anybody that says maybe. it's bizarre, think about your comparison for bizarre. What are you comparing this? Why is this movie bizarre? Well, surprise, surprise. Some of those nukes are still pointed our way and some of our nukes are still pointed their way. Uh, we're not by any means out of the forest on this concept that they're talking about in Strange Love, and that's why this movie still, unfortunately, retains its meaning and value. Uh, Don't you agree, George? Oh yeah, I think the the bizarreness in this movie is not so much the material, but it's it's the present, it's sort of the the execution of it, um, because the story basically concerns this general played uh, played by Sterling um, Sterling Hayden, General Jack D. Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> who takes it upon himself to launch a thermonuclear attack against Russia. Um, finally, you, you find out through the movie that it, he, you know, he seriously believes that fluoridation 
is is the cause of all our problems. It's the communist plot, and that, that fluoridated our water, water is damaging uh, our precious bodily fluids, as he says. <laughs> that you know, um, after the act of of, of uh, human love, he finds himself tired and realizes that it's because his bodily fluids are being poisoned by fluoride. Well, there's proof right there. What more do you want? <laughs> so he does. He sets off a whole wing of, of B-52s. Which are still with uh, loaded, us. That are still in the air. To, to uh, targets within the Soviet Union. Um, they managed to stop all but one of the bombers because one of the bombers gets hit by a, you know, gets sideswiped by a missile and its little device, its decoder device, the CRM-114, which we'll talk more about in a moment, uh, gets damaged so that they cannot be recalled. So the story grows even more tense as, you know, on one side you've got the Air Force Base where General Ripper is or was uh, being attacked by the United States Army, and then the war room in Washington where the uh, the president is trying to keep things under control between the uh, between the Russian premier and and General Buck Turgeson, played by uh, George C. Scott. Before then, Patton. Yep, and then you have uh, the, um, the B-52 bomber piloted by uh, by Major King Kong, played by uh, Slim Pickens. <laughs> Who's uh, just who is, great you know, in this. Who is totally determined to get that, you know, to deliver the goods as he has been told to do. Look in there real close, and you'll see James Earl Jones uh, running the uh, radio or yeah. navigation in there. <laughs> very young. James he is Earl very Jones. young yep. in that. So we've got a, a general who very, very, he was very clever in how he subverted uh, any sort of like, uh, I don't know what to call it. Uh, um, he, he, protocols. Protocols. He just really figured out the system that was in place and put this into motion so as to bring on basically World War III. And remember, these codes are analog. Nowadays, yeah. they're completely digital, so you can only imagine what has happened since 1964 as far as these codes are concerned. But uh, still, it's compelling, even though we've progressed so much technologically, which, of course, speaks to Rule 3. Uh, you know, I mean, it's still you believe it as they, they're talking about these codes. They're actually opening physical envelopes of, you right. know, the keys. Was it R, yeah, uh, keys the, 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 uh, the protocol R. Yeah. So we've got just a horrible tragedy in the making and then the efforts of... Uh, and there's all sorts of things that happen <laughs> to stop this airplane from getting through. And they, like, really amazing things happen to stop this. And they manage to overcome it. That's American know <laughs> Slim Pickens know manages to, he's never going to make it, boys. <laughs> Every little thing goes, all sorts of chance happens to stop this airplane, you know, items of chance. And then the airplane just goes through. It still makes it. And in the process, it's worth <laughs> noting that, that you know, so we have the, the, the drama of the war room into which they invite the No Soviet fighting in the, the war room. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> the Soviet uh, ambassador and, uh, and someone actually began to tussle, and the president said, no fighting in the war room. And, right. uh, yeah, absolutely that, hilarious. Uh, uh, aside from just the all-around concept of brilliance in this movie, there was a lot of very talented people involved in this movie, and one of the production designers, I mean, the production designer was Ken Adam, who did all, almost all the early James Bond movies up until just recently, and he also, I got to meet this man because I worked with him on Adam's Family, and Adam's Family Values. Um, <laughs> no, I think he, he was on Adam's Family Value, but Ken Adam 
is one of these guys who's like a giant who was a giant in um, production design and that war room is one of a very ken adam looking design. oh yeah it's very i mean it's very emblematic and you know uh, dark it's big circular affair and it's, big yeah circular light. very much like thunderball and yeah. to russia with love those huge sets that he did for the james bond pictures he's absolutely one of the most brilliant production designers that ever lived. Well, and what's movie. really interesting, speaking of production design, uh, since much of the film takes place inside the B-52 in, the, in both the cockpit and, and the under areas, um, they, they couldn't get assistance from the Air Force because, of course, A, the B-52 was still pretty, you know, pretty highly guarded plane, and uh, B, the, the Air Force really wasn't interested <laughs> In doing in having anything. Gee, I wonder film, why. Uh, you know about uh, annihilation caused by the United States Air Force. So they actually had <laughs> one photograph that had been accidentally printed in a British magazine, I believe it was, of the cockpit of B-52, and 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 derived the entire set from that. Oh, And at one really? point they they had the Air Force come and inspect it, and the set was really expensive. It was like a hundred thousand bucks. And the Air Force came to expect it, and were actually rather astonished and probably somewhat horrified at how accurate it was. <laughs> but they so didn't put so the kibosh. The was afraid that Ken Adam was going to get arrested oh. for, for, like, having spilled secrets or something. It does. It looks. I've been through a B-52, and it looks a lot like I mean, It's very, very accurate. Well, the so they, they kind of sitting... risked it a little even to do this. And, the, and, and, yeah, the military. This movie, the effects in this movie aren't super big. I mean, you're going to see a pretty wooden-looking model of a B-52 yeah, I mean, yeah, with, a, the, with a back-screen projection yeah, on it. Yeah, the shots of the, of the B-52 flying have not held up well, shall we say. I mean, it wasn't a big-budget movie by any stretch of the imagination. And the title, the opening titles are probably the cheapest titles ever made for a movie, don't you think, Yeah, George? they're like handwritten. Oh, I love <laughs> it. It's so simple. We're talking about Dr. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove, the 1964 Stanley Kubrick classic, in which, it's worth noting, Peter Sellers plays three roles, is that right? And it was That's almost right. four. Peter Sellers plays uh, President Merkin Muffley. Uh, he plays... <laughs> Lionel uh, Mandrake. Colonel Lionel Mandrake, and he plays Dr. Strangelove. Now, originally, he was also supposed to play Major Kong, but he, uh, he sprained his ankle and, and could not get in and out of the B-52 set, so they, uh, they brought in, so uh, Kubrick brought in Slim Pickens, hmm. who I actually think was a much better choice, I mean, you know, in, in retrospect, because, you know, Pickens is perfect for the, the kind of Texas bohunk kind character. Kind of yeehaw. Yeah, yeah, who's going to forget that last uh, scene where he rides up? Oh, spoiler alert. Do we need alert. to uh, uh, do a little uh, yeah. that yeah. last scene? But the beauty, I mean, the beauty of that and, and as throughout the film, there are these, these, these interesting sort of, oh gosh, how can I say this politely, uh, 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 <laughs> a sort of phallic symbolism throughout the film that's really strange. Yeah. This was before Kubrick really started to using yeah. the symbols. But I mean, first of all, there's the, the plane itself and then there's there's Major Kong riding the bomb down mm -hmm. between his legs. Backwards. And, right? and like it's, like it's a like, horse. You know, He's got his hat off. and Right. Yeah. Some of the characters like, you know, Buck Turgidson <laughs> and you have General Ripper and it was a sexual connotation there. Yeah. And of course, Lionel Mandrake. Mandrake was a, a is a root that is often used in magic as sort of a potency device and mm -hmm. and and Merkin Muffley, uh, if anybody Merkin. out there knows, probably doesn't know that I have learned this myself. But in in movies, a Merkin 
is a little flesh-colored cap used to cover your privates when you do a nude scene. Oh, well, that's funny because actually it was uh, something popular in Victorian times. They were actually um, private wigs, if you will. Let's just leave it yeah. the description at that, an actual a hair wig that you would uh, wear there. So, yeah, all kinds of uh, layers. Well, I won't even get into the, the, the name Muffley, you know. <laughs> no, we're just going to start talking about Benny Hill stuff if we get there. <laughs> And so that's killing Benny us because Benny Hill didn't make any movies. We love to talk about Benny Hill. Yeah. Speaking of excuse. Benny Hill, not that he was in this one, but at mm-hmm. one point the film did end with a big pie fight. Yes. Is that true? Yes. It was, uh, it's, uh, I, I've, if you look on the Internet, you can find photographs of it. Um, I believe it was shown once uh, right after Kubrick died. The footage, I guess, does exist. They showed it in London. But uh, I think Kubrick thought it just, it just slowed the movie down at the wrong time. Yeah. So he took it out. Could have been some and that, much you know, needed. the beautiful ending of, uh, well, it's beautiful as far as cinema is concerned is, you know, We Will Meet Again, the, the song over the mushroom montage. So he, clouds. yeah, it's all, it's all at least presumably over, right? And it's just mm-hmm. mushroom cloud the after mushroom cloud. stoic, anti I dare I say anti-comatic ending, George? In a way, no? although it wasn't, but, but it's sort of not quite what you expect. It's almost like a peaceful interpretation of these bomb explosions, which, forgive me, are beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a beauty to the well, he certainly, mushroom cloud. That's certainly the angle he's taking to disarm you at the end of this picture. Yeah. Because I really think this movie, um, Dr. Strangelove is what we're talking about, is one of these movies when people see it for the first time, just kind of just passively watch it and then for some reason they end up watching it again because maybe because it's still very popular or else they go after it again and then it gets kind of set in their psyche and it works with them because we have had so many people say well what about dr strangelove and i think this is our first stanley kubrick movie that we review because most of his are on our list is this our first one george i believe it is um and we chose this one because we think this is this stanley you know one of the the most well-known. Well, it also stands uh, out as being his only all-out comedy effort. And, and it's such See, an that's... anti-war movie. It is one of these movies where you can say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it is an anti-war movie. Would If you can't say well, that, then you I can't mean, watch yeah, the movie. I mean, I think it was considered an anti-war movie from, from the get-go, uh, but it wasn't considered a comedy from the get-go. No. I mean, the book it is based on, which is Red Alert by Peter George, uh, is, a very, is a serious book. And Kubrick got the rights to it, and when he started working on the script, he began to realize that it probably that he could much more effectively tell the story as a comedy. Well, what's interesting now, uh, here's another one where uh, a case for me that often has happened with the movies on the perfect list, uh, that I've seen them as a younger person, mm-hmm. and they just, I wasn't perhaps, I think, old enough, maybe intelligent enough, smart enough, um, uh, savvy enough to a lot of the references that were made, and I remember seeing it as a kid and being somewhat frightened by this movie, despite the fact that now I've seen it, and I do recognize that there are comedic elements, though very dark, mm-hmm. but I did not... Uh, this is the scene where George C. Scott is calling... The um, I think it's president of Russia, and he goes, um, um, we've we haven't been able to call it back. Um, but you know, it's just a wonderful scene where he's <laughs> talking to the Russian president, and he's well, you know, the airplane is just we we it's there's one loose, and we haven't been able to call it back. Or <laughs> so. <can't>. Uh... <laughs> well, I think, and George C. Scott is such an interesting character in this because he's he's so over the top, and from what I understand. This is like Kubrick at his at his sort of tricky, tricky, nasty best. That he, you know, deliberately had, you know, uh, uh, Scott do these these takes that were so outrageous as as like a practice run. 
and then would have him do a, another take of the same thing, very normal. But then he went, you know, went through and used all the crazy takes, uh, which just infuriated George C. Scott. It said he would never work with with uh, Kubrick again after that. Well, he did the takes. Of, I mean, huh? he, he he did them. Yeah, but he didn't he realize he, he didn't realize that that's what Kubrick was going to use. But it's even like still, a, then he should like been you know careful. shooting some out of focus and telling the focus puller we're not going to use it. Then you use it. You know, it's, yeah. um, but it's the same. I mean, it's like he, industry cruelty. You know, he has done that. I mean, that's how a lot of times how he gets his performances out. If you ever see the documentary about the making of The Shining, he's absolutely he's absolutely horrible to Shelley Duvall. Oh. But and, and you just kind of just kind of loathe him because of how he's treating her. But he gets this amazing performance out of her because of that. And yeah, it's cruel, but it, you know. But for him, it worked as a director. No, we're talking uh, about the classic 1964 uh, Doctor Strange Love, Stanley Kubrick, and it's uh, filmically perfect. And I have to say that uh, certainly, you know, being familiar with this movie all my life because it's always been either on TV or people talking about it. And finally, really, as a you know full grown adult, I, I I have to agree this movie is just like an onion layer after layer of uh, significance and meaning, which. Um, well, the unfortunate aspect is it's going to remain a perfect movie because of the times we live in. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, our rules are not always uh, uh, sacrosweet. Uh, <laughs> this is a perfect movie because of, of these things have not gone away. Now, Maybe because it speaks so much to human nature. Be, it will remain a perfect movie because human beings will always be human beings. That's it, yeah. isn't it? And these plans that, that people come up with work well until you add that human element. These churnings, it's like it's it's, it's, it's relentless striving for power and more and uh, to be the top dog. We can only warn you, if you watch this movie, don't watch any presidential press conferences or anything like that (laughs) after this. Because you will understand what we're talking about here. If you have never seen this movie, you see this movie and then you watch... uh, um, Mr. Bush, or, President Bush talking, or Dick Cheney, or anybody, anybody it's in politics. Any speak politics. and yeah, yeah. Anybody running for president now, no matter what you do, you're going to run into this movie. That's what kind of genius this man well, was. I'll, I'll tell you what. One one thing I would like to bring up, just sort of jumping out of sequence here, but we were talking about the, you know, the in the, in the airplane and in the film, there's this little device called the CRM one one four, and this becomes a really interesting thing in in Kubrick land because it shows up in some of his different movies. And it's always a device that turns the story around. Oh, interesting. Because like in this one, the CRM-114 is a device that sends the code to tell the planes to bomb or to not to bomb. And that code is? It's what gets damaged and keeps the one plane from being called back. And the code is? Uh, What is it? It's it's OP. (laughs) It's our precious, like, OPF something our precious fluids oh and uh I didn't uh, get that. as you go on as you go on into kubrick's films you keep seeing for whatever reason crm 114 shows up several more times does it what um, does it have significance to him is that the idea it must have some significance because in clockwork orange uh the character of alex when he goes in for his treatments is given serum number 114 mm-hmm. like crm serum Number one one four, and that's what changes him, and you know, makes him the nice guy who gets sick at violence, and of course, changes his life completely. Really, a theme for Kubrick, isn't it? That it's a mechanism that changes things. Mm-hmm. It's not, yeah, yeah. And I believe, I think it's in two thousand one. Also, I, I'm, I'm sort of remembering. I believe it's the, um, the, um, 
Something about Hal, some, some no, aspect? No, it's, it's yeah, something that Hal brings up. It's like the, the, uh, the antenna that he says has a problem with it. Oh. <laughs> it's CRM-114, I think. And, of course, it's not. And that's what begins to make the astronauts believe there's something wrong with the computer. Now, of course, you won't find this sort of material in the movie Failsafe, which looks just like this movie if you're watching it. You What's know, about that movie? It's the same, virtually the same story. Um, yes, Failsafe, uh, bomber goes off and, and blows up a city in Russia, and then the president um, sends the order to blow up New York to counteract it. What, who wrote this? What is this about? This I've is never... another, another book came out about the same time uh, by one of the authors of The Ugly American and Sidney Lumet made the film, also came out in 64, also released by Columbia. Both films were put out by Columbia Pictures. And I do believe they're flying B-52s. I believe they're B-52s. With a really bad scene scroll in the background, because they probably didn't get their cockpit right, I'll bet. You know? <laughs> uh, now listen, now is, was it just a terrible, awful movie, or is that why we don't remember it? Or it's was still around. You still Dr. See it Strange loves yeah, so I mean, much it's, better? It's out there. I think uh, it's probably that because it's Stanley Kubrick and because it's a comedy that, that Dr. Strangelove probably remains a little more palatable. This one's very straight and very dramatic. It uh, has right. no resemblance in tone to Dr. Strangelove whatsoever. But oddly, it kind of looks like Strangelove with some of the angles and everything that they used in the cockpit because you can only shoot those things one way. Um, but you're always going to be thinking, wait a minute, is that Strangelove? You know, if you haven't seen Strangelove too many times, you'll always you'll be able to spot it if you have. You'll say, oh, yeah, that's Failsafe. And then you'll walk away, of course. Um, <laughs> not to say that Failsafe's a bad movie. It was just the wrong it's place at the wrong Strange time, Love. you know? I have to say yeah. that some of the funniest parts, and again, this, this humor is so dark that it's, for me, it was rarely laugh-out-loud humor. It was almost like an intellectual humor. The humor is so, so dark. But it was when uh, the, uh, the Dr. Strangelove was in the wheelchair with his arm that seems to have a life of its own, and he's trying to speak about how everybody can survive underground. For, you know, if everybody can just stay down there 100 years and on this bizarro tale that all the guys are eating up, that it's, you know, oh, yeah. Like, women uh, seven to... <laughs> women to five or to one man or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and he goes on to try to tell about this, but this arm that seems to be have the spirit of uh, Hitler in it or something right. is, uh, and his efforts to control that to me was some of the funniest uh, portions of the film. And I guess that is actually, I mean, there is a, a thing called alien hand syndrome uh, <laughs> really? that has happened, actually has does happen to people at some time where they cannot control their arm. Wow. You ever put your eye out with that thing? Yeah, and I tried to choke him at the end, which is just really, and in, 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 in the lines that he was delivering was actually, I thought, just completely well done and um, also really uh, very funny. Well, if you also notice that that arm that, they, I, that arm that he has problems with seems to, to be a prosthetic as well. Yes. Because he wears a black glove on it, and he kind of has to crank it around to get it to move in the first place. Yeah. Who I do believe Mel Brooks kind of took that one step farther and Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, we've been talking about a perfect movie indeed. It is Dr. Strange Loves the 1964 Stanley Kubrick movie. Tell me again the subtitle. I always miss it up. I always it miss is it. It is Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And uh, it is perfect in every way. We just have a little bit of time left, but again, it's without question uh, fulfills the rules. And in fact, I think we'll be uh, uh, watched at, even even if this sort of war threat goes out of our society, it will be seen as a, an amazing comment on human nature. I think, gentlemen, as always, a great great. Hey, pleasure. you know we got all our iPod 
problems worked out. And you can, go, right. you can go, uh, no, our iTunes, you can go straight to iTunes. We're there. Uh, we're NPR.com. Uh, we're all there. Check us at perfectmovie.com. Excuse me, perfectmovie.net. But all our uh, lines are all cleared up now, so you can find us at all these places. We're easy. Just get every, out there every and look for show. us. Filmically perfect, perfectmovie.net. The film guys always love to hear from you, too. Film guys at perfectmovie.net. However you make that connection, make sure you do it. And until next time, J. Todd Anderson, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. George Willeman, see ya. Ciao, Bella. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.